podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Zero Ducks Given. And it is currently myself and Mr. Stephen Finn. Daniel Norcross was due to be joining us, but he has gone to the pub with Jeremy Coney and he said he's running 10 minutes late. However, a Daniel Norcross 10 minutes, and this won't surprise people that have never met Norcross, but listen to the podcast. A Daniel Norcross 10 minutes could be an infinite amount of time. Finn, if you could just put into words how much you're missing, Daniel, right now, um, you know, what would you what would you say? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a great travesty that he's not here. Also means that the podcast might be actually mildly efficient for for a change as opposed to hearing people waffling on. I see here last week when he had Jeremy Coney on, he'd infected him with um with his inability to answer something within 30 seconds. Uh, and we got a 10 minute long answer from Jeremy about a, a very simple question. Um, and it seems to be rubbing off on people. So I don't really want that to rub off on me. So the less time he spends here, the better. Well, I mean, Jeremy Coney, what a pleasure and what a gent and lovely to have him on the podcast last week. However, I believe Sal edited down some of his answers for the podcast that went out. He genuinely, I asked him, what can we expect from Brendan McCullum as England coach? And Jeremy Coney, answered for 12 minutes. <laughs> can, can you imagine what it must be like when Coney and Norcross are sat at home talking to each other? And it's really Mrs. Norcross, you have to feel for in all of this, who has to sit there and listen to those two go back and forth in 15 minutes each at a time. Uh, so no wonder they're running late at the pub because probably the waitress asked Jeremy Coney what he would like to eat. And they're still there. They're still there now discussing it. Uh, anyway, Norcross is due to join us at some point this hour. Now, Norcross is going to miss out on this, Finney, because it's a rare moment where we compliment you because I spotted something. I looked at how you performed for, for Sussex in the Vitality Blast over the course of the last week. And you're having a good tournament. Nine wickets at 16. And an economy rate of just under eight, which in the modern game is pretty damn good. However, not only are you having a good tournament, but you exacted some revenge. Now, if you've listened to the podcast regularly, you will know that occasionally we like to bring up the time that in the hundred, John Simpson got absolutely stuck into Stephen Finn's five balls in the hundred. How many runs did that over go for, Finney? Actually, I've completely forgotten, but it was plenty. <laughs> it was plenty. However, Middlesex versus Sussex the other day, and I saw that John Simpson was bold Finn caught right for two runs off four balls. What what a beautiful moment that must have been, Finney. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's the first time that I've played against Middlesex since I left them. So it was slightly bizarre and strange playing against all of my mates from the last few years at Middlesex. Um, so yeah, to exact some degree of revenge on them and John Simpson was a pleasure. It was actually an important time of the game that we ended up getting him out because he obviously is very dangerous. And I've got Luke Wright to thank for it really because it was a phenomenal diving one-handed catch at short third man. He like, I don't know how it carried that far, but it was an outside edge and it carried all the way to short third man. And, and he took a diving one-handed screamer 
and sort of didn't know what to do when he got up and celebrated. And, and I just went running towards him and picked him up, I think. So it was a nice moment and, and nice to get a few wickets against Middlesex. Yeah, four overs for, for either 29 against your former employees. Now, what's it like afterwards? Obviously, you're, you've got a lot of very good mates in that Middlesex dressing room. Did you pop your head around the corner and go and see him after the game? Well, you, you've got to sing the team song first, Sussex by the Sea. So we, um, we sing the team song and uh, you make sure that everyone can hear it in the ground. So that's the first thing that you do after the game. But yeah, I sat down and had a beer with a few of the guys after the game because there were obviously a lot of my very good friends in there. Uh, and yeah, it was nice just to chat around, chat about the game. And it was actually a good game of cricket in the end. We won by Duckworth-Lewis method in the last over of our reply. Um, and it went all the way till about half past 10 at night. So it limited any ability to do too much after it. And we had a game the next day. So that also limited our ability to do too much about the win. But yeah, it popped your head around the corner, sat on the balcony there at Sussex because you're next to each other um, and have a chat about yeah the, the last few months because they've had a good few months and, uh, and the game. Now, Daniel Norcross has just appeared uh, only 15 minutes late, which by his goings is pretty acceptable. Uh, Norcross, we're talking about Stephen Finn's revenge on John Simpson. He got him out for two runs in the Vitality Blast the other day. And uh, it's now Finn won, Simpson won in this all-time great duel. Yeah, it's a different format, isn't it? I think that longer format doesn't suit Simpson. Um, once you add the extra 20 balls, he's basically all over the place. So presumably what you, you, you set him up. Finney, how'd you set him up? No, it was the first ball I bowled to him. Um, <laughs> And I was bowling uphill into a gale. So I just sprinted to the crease and tried to get the ball down there, to be honest, rather than having too much of a, um, of a plan. But he just managed to outside edge it to the short third man fielder. So it was, um, it was a pleasant outcome for me. Lovely. Did you remind him of it? Uh, no, I didn't, actually. I didn't. I'm not that sort of gloating person. He also hasn't ever mentioned the fact that he lashed me all over the place in that game. So, you know, we just, we just leave it unsaid, I think, and have a mutual respect. Just leave me and Norcross to constantly talk about the time that he lashed you all over the ground and said, if you two aren't going to talk about it, me and Norcross will talk about it instead. Now, you mentioned that you've got to sing the victory song after a fine ritual like that, Finney. Um, have you had to do any sort of initiation since you've joined Sussex? No, no, I haven't, to be honest. They're, they're all a very amicable bunch. Um, and initiations seem to have removed themselves from the game a little bit um, in the modern time. So, no, um, I haven't been made to stand up on a chair naked and sing a song or something. Did you, have, you, have you had to do something similar for England or Middlesex or indeed anybody else? No, never. I've never had to do an initiation. Actually, the only time I've ever had to do an initiation was for the England under-19s for some reason. All those years ago, 2006, I think I had to stand on a chair somewhere in Kuala Lumpur and sing a song in front of a packed TGI Fridays. <laughs> wouldn't, nearly, wouldn't nearly all of you be being initiated at the same time if it's England under-19s? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it was a it was a lot of pain for the people in that restaurant. <laughs> 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 Fuck it up. You go out for one quiet TGI Fridays in Kuala Lumpur, and suddenly a load of six foot five hairy blokes are all stood on a chair. And every time you think that one's over, the next debutant steps up and belts out living mm -hmm. on a prayer. What song did you do, Finney? I to be honest, I can't remember, but I just remember being incredibly embarrassed. I mean, I, now I'd back myself to get up and sing, you know, my voice has matured and I've become as one as a uh, as a singer, but um, but I think back then when my voice was breaking and, and my musical taste was questionable, I wouldn't be wanting to listen to myself. Jeremy Cody's staying with me again because obviously the test match is over. 
And I've just been chatting to him over lunch, and he tells me that you actually sang a pretty good rendition of your Barmy Army song. Yeah, I think I might have done in New Zealand on the radio. I also, the most recent time that I sang in front of people was at a charity dinner a couple of years ago, and for Ian Botham, actually. And there was, like, as part of the entertainment, this singer was going around, and he came over and, and picked me out of the crowd, and you have to sing a verse of the song with him. And it was me and Mrs. Jones that I had to sing, Michael Bublé. Um, and I think he, did he do the original version? I'm no, to he didn't. Nah, Is it Otis Redding originally or Billy Paul or someone like that? It's, it's quite an old song. Mm. Yeah. But it, it, yeah, it was a version of that song. Um, and I had to sing a verse in front of about 500 people with him. But I, I you know, I, naturally I nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough track. There's some big notes in me and Mrs. Jones. That's, uh, that's quite an impressive yeah. one to take on, I've got to be honest. I'm really disappointed that the initiation has died out. I, I, it, it's one of those things that cricket clubs do that you assume goes all the way up the ladder. But I guess maybe when you get to the pro standard, it's slightly more serious level of cricket. And probably you're not meant to do a yard of ale when you're playing for it. What did you do? A yard of ale. That's what we always have to do, a yard of ale. That's the, we, we get everyone that made their debut for the first 11 that season on the final game of the season after the game. Everyone that's made their debut that year does a yard and it is comfortably my favourite night of the year every year because usually the poor kid that's made their debut that year is about 18 years old and uh, watching them attempt a yard of ale is really, I mean, it's wonderful. I mean, it's, <laughs> it really is. It really is. This is the inclusive game that cricket is, isn't it? I mean, this, yes. is, this is how we're going to reach out to wider communities. Yes. We're going to take the 18-year-old yeah, a bunch of baying older blokes go down, down, down it, down it, down it. It's a load of bitter old blokes who aren't as good at cricket as they used to be. And yes. just basically all they've got left now is being quite good at having a beer. I'll tell you my initiation ceremony. Or the initiation ceremony that I used to use for my players was when I was captain of the twos, I used to drive around the outside to get the flags up, right? So, you know, at the end of the game, we have flags rather than a, than a painted circle. Um, so I would drive round the outfield and they would hang out of the drive of the passenger side door, picking up the flags as we went round. And it's quite um, fun because you can go really <laughs> fast sometimes and they get fucking terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't that completely churn up your outfield? Yeah, the, um, the, the groundsman was really annoyed, but we, you tended to do it when he wasn't there because being a groundsman of, of a club side, he hated it when the players were there, so he'd go out on a Saturday night. <laughs> you'd, right. just, you'd just spin around the outfield, Isn't... go around in a circle with some poor 16-year-old hanging out the side, obviously with no seatbelt on. Yeah, it's quite... I, I'd like to ask Finney about the professional groundsman at the top level because I don't know if this is your experience, Norcross, but every groundsman I've ever seen at club level is batshit crazy. They're normally yeah. a bloke who walks around the ground, normally shirtless, but has got the most ridiculous tan ever because they've been in the sun for about, yep. well, 60 years. Um, they almost always smell of either alcohol, cannabis or both. Um, and they can often just seem just sort of angrily trawling around the boundary uh, throughout the summer. And then also, I've never seen a groundsman out of season. Where do they go for six months a year? It's like, uh, yeah, they're like you, dead pigeons, aren't they? They are. You, you, honestly, as soon as it gets to October, you don't see the groundsman again until about March March next year when he starts preparing for the new season. Are, are there some characters in the groundsman world at the professional level, Finney? Yeah, I mean, the, the same sentiments 
runs through when they don't like you practicing or playing on their surface because it messes up the pristine nature of it. Actually, the thing at Sussex at the moment is there seems to be a lot of people being buried on the outfit. Buried? <laughs> yeah. Really? Hang on a minute. Ashes are being is it, buried. Is, it, is, in is this is happening in the middle of the night? Is it suddenly? You know, you, you turn up. There's a bloody great hole on length. And they're standing up. They're buried standing up. Yeah. Well, to be honest, there's been a few games here this year we could have done with that down here. Just that flat. <laughs> are you, are you um, being serious? There's people being buried at Hove every week. Yes. Yeah, there are people, the little vaults dug out for them on the outfield um, and their ashes are put in there and soiled over. So if you see like dark squares or dark markings on the outfield at oh, Hove, God. it's where someone's been buried. How Bloody macabre. Hell. So you're like charging over... Uh, Colonel Wilfred Timkins Wise. So I imagine that the, it's a relatively elderly crew at uh, Hove, isn't it? I should imagine people who've retired well, for the seaside. Well, they're not just elderly, Dan, they're literally dead. They're well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some people die young, but yeah, I mean, these, these people are ironically sent to the seaside for their health and they always die down there, don't they? It never works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bournemouth, Eastbourne, Hove, it's full of the dead. <laughs> the old- it's a graveyard of elderly people that were told the sea would be good for them. Yeah, yeah. Bugger Bogner. <laughs> that would be sad. If, so if you're a Sussex fan and say, like, your nan's buried at mid-wicket, you, you could watch Finney go around the park. And not only that, not only are you watching Sussex get spanked everywhere, but you're watching the ball bounce over your nan's head every few minutes as well. What a, what a bizarre existence that must be. What do you reckon it costs to be buried at Hove? <laughs> I'm not sure you can't imagine they charge anything, surely. What they're gonna they're gonna dig a groundsmen aren't gonna be happy digging a, a square and sticking some ashes in it. But you, you, you've just described perfectly what groundsmen are like. The last thing they think that you've got to compensate those poor buggers a lot if you want your ashes interned in a sodding cricket outfield, surely. <laughs> Finny, where where do you want your ashes uh scattered when when you finally leave this mortal coil? That's a good question, actually. I wouldn't mind um, scattered. To be honest, it's such a morbid thought. I've not even thought about it. <laughs> I have. I, I don't know if there's anywhere that would. Um, you can put me in with my couple of cats at the back end of my family garden. There's, a, I think, there's Sybil, TC, and Tigger are all buried in the flower bed at the top of my um, garden in Watford. So you know, stick me in amongst there with them. How and big's yeah. your bloody garden to fit you no. in there? <laughs> tiny, tiny. You, you have to burn me first. Oh yeah, we'll have to decompress you some way, or, or compress you, I should say. I, I know exactly where I want to be. I, I've already discussed this with the the people high up at uh, the Oval. I want to be kept in the false bottom of an ashtray next to a no smoking sign at the Oval. <laughs> <laughs> I, I reckon we could easily get that arranged. By the way. I think that could easily ease. It's not you're not asking for much, are you? It's a pretty bleak place I'm, to. I'm really not asking. It's nothing like as much as digging a bloody hole in in hove. Exactly. In that. That's a very reasonable, very reasonable request. So I think we could probably grant you that. Uh, right, we should probably get into the cricket. But yeah, Finney nine wickets at sixteen in the Vitality Blast Norcross. I know you've been swanning around watching the uh, the England Test match, but Finney's tearing it up in the Vitality Blast. The only problem is every time I check the scorecard, he doesn't get a bloody bat. No, no that chance is of him hitting any sixes this season. But he's, but he's also keeping Sussex sort of vaguely in the competition. I mean, obviously, 
other counties like Surrey are over the hill and far away. But um, it's good to see that, that Sussex are still like just about clinging on there in mid-table. It's uh, it's lovely, lovely looking down there and, and seeing their names. We've got Surrey on Wednesday, actually, at the Oval. So I'm, um, I'm looking forward to that one. Well, Coney's going to be commentating on it. There you go. It's a, uh, that is an exclusive that I can announce today in my work as his agent. And he will be on the Surrey live stream and on BBC Radio covering every ball either on the TV thing or the radio thing. He'll have his beady eye on you. Oh, yes, Stephen. He'll be taking a close look at you, making sure everything's in good working order. I mean, it's not the biggest announcement, is it? I mean, on Radio X, we had Liam Gallagher come and tell us that he was going to go and play Nebworth in front of 250,000 people, and that was considered quite a big deal. We can officially announce that Jeremy Coney will be commentating on Sussex Surrey this week. So there you go. The, all the big exclusive here at Zero Ducks given. Uh, now let's get into the test match. The uh, wonderful test match, by the way. Another beautiful advert for the five-day for the five-day game, although it didn't actually make it to the five-day, but that's irrelevant. Um, England beat New Zealand. It's been a long, long time since the England boys have had that winning feeling. And uh, we'll go through a few individuals that had excellent games for the England boys, but obviously... There is only one man on everybody's lips this week, and that is a man who, let's be honest, in the uh, short time we've been doing this podcast, although Finney will tell you it feels like a lifetime, we've already spent a lot of time praising the incredible Joe Root. And this is another one of those times, I'm afraid, because you can't really talk about the England win without talking about the main man, Joe Root. 115 not out in the second innings. Um, We've said everything there is to say about how bloody good he is. It was really nice to see him playing with a smile on his face and scoring runs after losing the captaincy as well, uh, well, giving up the captaincy. One question I've got for you, Stephen Finn. He passed 10,000 runs beautifully. He's now on 10,015 runs in total. He brought it up with his 100, which was a beautiful moment. 5,000 runs off Sachin Tendulkar. It's, it's not impossible. It's just probably a case of how long Joe Root wants to keep playing for England, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think much in the same ilk as Alistair Cook retired maybe slightly prematurely in terms of age compared to what um, other people would have done around the world. I think, yeah, it's, it's his ability to be able to handle playing cricket 12 months a year across all formats as he does at the moment. I think to, to go past Tendulkar will be a big ask because that's a lot more cricket that he's going to have to play about another 50 test matches, isn't it? To mm. average 50 and score 5,000 runs. So, yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no reason why he couldn't do it. He's a fit man. He's a he's a, a very strong-minded man. Um, he seems to be free now. And he spoke about being free, not being the captain anymore, about how it be- had become an unhealthy relationship between him and the captaincy. So that may, um, that may give him the opportunity to be able to uh, continue and carry on long into the future. And I hope for England's sake that he does, because he is a wonderful player. There are so many remarkable things about that innings really I mean there's a lovely stat it's called Joe Root and he got a hundred to get to exactly 10,000 a hundred is obviously the square root of 10,000 which is kind of beautiful when he uh, brought that up he's done it got to 10,000 runs quicker than anybody else nine years 177 days which tells you something else actually which is that England play a vast amount of test cricket and in a week where there was a little bit of fear because a chap from the ICC speaking to TMS had suggested test cricket might have to be scaled back a little bit or suggested it would be. Um, it's interesting to see that England is still playing more test matches than anywhere else. Um, and you talk about how long maybe to get to Tendulkar's mark. 
you mentioned Alistair Cook there. Finney, do you think it's a bit different between Root and Cook because of the, the way they play the game? Firstly, Cookie's an opener, yeah. But secondly, you know, Cookie, his game was always about denial, really. So it turned himself into the clip off the hip, the square cut, the nudge, defend, leave, you know, and, and be able to do that with fierce powers and concentration. And he sort of alluded to that himself a couple of times on, on air when he said you know, that the hunger and the mental ability to be able to keep doing that just wanes with age whereas actually watching roots innings it was so fluent on a pitch where people did not score quickly easily he in that partnership with folks especially on the third evening he was just different gravy i mean he was accessing different parts of the outfield to sort of the same ball it was impossible to bowl at him which makes me kind of wonder if He's got a better chance of lasting for a bit longer. I mean, there's a different natural talent that he's got, isn't there? And he bats that a little bit further down the order as well. So it's not the the sort of the awfulness of facing the new ball every time. Although you might argue jokingly that he does seem to quite a lot because England lose the first two wickets quickly. But do you know what I mean? I mean, they're, they're different kinds of batter. You saw, I sort of think another five years of root doesn't seem un- outlandish. He'd only be 36 then. Yeah, yeah, I I do agree. I think that the nature of the way that Alistair Cook batted um, and the concentration that he um, and dedication that he put into concentrating um, and using his mind as a tool, um, I think would have definitely worn him down. Um, and it's not to say that Joe Root doesn't concentrate at the same level because uh, he obviously does to be able to go out and score that amount of test runs. But yeah, Joe Root is a notoriously happy bright, outlooking young man, you'd have to say, wouldn't you? And, and maybe towards the end of Alistair Cook's tenure as captain, it had worn him down to a point where he probably wasn't enjoying cricket as much as he felt as though he should be to be able to make the op- most of um, his opportunities. So I do think that Joe Root relieving the captaincy or relieving himself of the captaincy um, it will definitely give him the opportunity to enjoy his cricket even more. And, and hopefully, as an England fan, we'll, we'll add him a few more years onto his career. Can I ask you about young Joe Root? Because he made his debut in 2012. And obviously by that point, you were, you know, right in the thick of the England setup. So you had a crossover a few years with him. And it was kind of always expected when Joe Root burst on the scene, you know, this kid can bat. He's going to play test cricket for England. But you can never predict what they're going to go on to do. I mean, we've talked a lot about Ollie Pope, who's still having his struggles in England shirt, even though he's been sort of pit for greatness for a few years. Was, was it, were he one of those players that when he came along, when you first saw Joe Root, whether it be at the county level or training at England or playing alongside him at England, where just straight away you thought, yeah, world, world-class world cricketer. Because he's had his ups and downs. He got dropped in Australia, obviously. Has he surprised you? No, no, not at all. I think the the thing that was most obvious, there was one net session where I remember bowling to him. I think it was in Ahmedabad. Um, and, and I had a reverse swinging ball because reverse swing is obviously a very big component of being able to bowl in the subcontinent so I had a reverse swinging ball and this is when I bowled quick and when I was probably at the best that I'd ever bowled in my career in 2012 and I had this reverse swinging ball and he was watching and could tell which way I was swinging the ball um, which is a very hard skill to be able to do and I just remember this one net session where I was I was trying to prove myself to be fit for the next test match so I was running in hard he hadn't played yet, so he was obviously there looking to practice and, and get better. 
and yeah, this this one net session, I remember bowling at him for about I don't know, it would have been six six overs, something like that. So half an hour or forty minutes, um, and and yeah, you could just tell that he was a different beast to other people that I'd bowled at. You just get this feeling sometimes when you bowl at someone, you think that they've got a special talent to be able to pick up your length, pick up your line, be able to watch the ball unbelievably closely. And yeah, I remember that one net session just thinking, Christ, this this lad can play. Obviously, you don't envisage that he's going to go on and play over 100 test matches and score 10,000 runs. But but you did feel as though there was a different beast inside him um, to, the, to the other young batters that, that I'd bowled at at the time. He made his debut, didn't he, in that, in that series? That was England's winning... Fifth test, yeah. Series. Fourth yeah. test, whatever, yeah. And it might even have been at Nagpur. I can't remember. Because it's similar parallels with Alistair Cook, of course, who made his debut out in India in 2006, Nagpur. And there was really... What was immediately obvious to me that Joe Root was going to be brilliant was that in the first innings, he was really caught on the front foot. He kept on coming forward and he was struggling against the spinners and he, he hadn't worked out what he was going to do. And he didn't get that many, got out. And in the second innings, he had a completely different approach and he played predominantly off the pitch and he trusted his eye and he went back and played off the back foot and suddenly looked to be, you know, really in control. And you thought, somebody who's learning that quickly and he's able to change their approach that quickly and adapt that quickly, that is a serious, serious cricketer, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the um, some of the best players that I've, played with sort of have a mantra that they don't get out the same way twice in a test match so that's almost learning from your mistakes and learning from what you're or the information that you're receiving on the job at the time means that you do adapt your game as you go through to be able to counteract the things that other teams are trying to do so yeah for Joe to be able to make those adjustments and then go and, and put them into practice and be successful in that second inning certainly did show that he had a special talent and, and he's proved everyone who thought that at the time right. Can I ask you, Finney, about any other players in your career? So I'd put you on the spot with this question, but not necessarily, don't have to be English, but can be bowlers, batsmen, whatever that you've seen up close at a young age and just immediately you fought different class. Um, that's a good question. I think Chris Wokes, when I was younger, we're the same age, roomed together on under-19s tours. You could always tell that he was just a phenomenally, naturally gifted sportsman with everything that he did um, and made cricket look really easy, annoyingly easy, actually. So yeah, you always watched him play for the England under-19s and, and thought that he could be really, really special. And then he came back to county cricket in those next couple of years and put some phenomenal numbers together and then has really been in the England setup since then. But yeah, I mean, off the top of my head, no, because I try not to put praise like that on people too frequently because you just end up talking too many people up when um, when you don't think that that's correct. But there was something definitely very special and very different about Joe Root that I just noticed from that one net session that we had. I actually, the other person that I did get that feeling with who hasn't quite, hit the same heights was Haseeb Hamid on that first tour of India in 2017, 16, 17, 16, 16, 17. Yeah. Again, I remember bowling to him in the nets and him being able to just punish anything that was a little bit offline and seemed to have that same level of concentration that Joe Root had. Uh, And then he broke his hand a couple of times badly after that, in that following season. 
or even in that series, didn't he? he broke it in that series, yeah. I think. Yeah, um, yeah, something at the back at square leg. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and yeah, I don't know whether that's affected him or what. He's obviously still a fine player, but I thought that I really thought that he, when I first bowled at him, had a really big international future, and he and he may still do. I hope he comes again because he's a lovely lad and he's a nice player, but not quite as fluently as Joe Root managed to do it from a young age. Well, he won't be getting in the England side anytime soon if you keep uh, snicking him off in the county championship. So um, if you could go easy on Hasib Bamid for the sake of his career, Finney, that would be much appreciated. I usually gift him I usually gift him 100, actually. It just made a complete change. I think everyone was shocked. <laughs> I think he scored 100 against me last two or three times he's played me. So he probably thought, Jesus, he's bowled one straight. That's not right. <laughs> um, now, speaking of very talented young cricketers, I mean, if you had told me after a couple of days of this test match that we wouldn't just be sat here talking about Matthew Potts, I wouldn't have believed you. But uh, Joe Root ended up stealing all the headlines, as he so often has in his career. But Matthew Potts, unbelievable. If I was him, I'd retire now because he's currently got a bowling average of 9.71 in an England shirt, which isn't too bad after he took seven wickets and a couple of catches in the game. Finney, you said last week or the week before on this podcast that from what you'd seen of Matthew Potts, you were really impressed by him. It was the first time I'd properly seen him other than on a, on a few streams online and stuff. Um, what I liked about him wasn't just the fact that he bowled really bloody well and a real persistent line in length, but um, he just looked really at home in an England shirt. He didn't look phased. Um, he, he was celebrating some of those wickets like he'd already taken 200 test wickets. Um, you said he was going to be impressive, but even in his wildest dreams, he couldn't have expected a, a test debut like that, surely. Um, no, no, but I think it also shows the benefit of picking people whilst they're in form and confident because it now gives him a real good footstep to be able to um, to put his foot and get his teeth into test match cricket. I think when you pick people when they're on form and playing well for their county, um, you do sort of go in and it's just another game of cricket. And, and as soon as you get those initial nerves out of the way, if he nicked off Kane Williamson in his first over, didn't he? That's going to alleviate a lot of the nerves that you may have going into a test match. And it's amazing how something small like that can just make you feel unbelievably confident and as though no one can touch you. And I don't mean to harp on about myself, but in my comeback test match in 2015, I got Steve Smith out in my first over and I was super nervous going into that. It almost felt like a second debut. And you've got the ball in your hand, you've been bowling well in county cricket, but you don't know if you're good enough to be able to make it again in test match cricket and something as small as that can just give you that little bit of confidence to be able to just free up and, and go and give it your all and, and feel as though you don't leave anything out on the field. And that's certainly what it looked like that he did. I feel really sorry for him though on, on, on one measure. I know it sounds crazy to feel sorry for somebody who's taken seven wickets at Lords on debut, but he was on four for four, was it four for 13? The first innings, something like yeah. that. And he's got Trent Bolt at the other end and he had four balls at him. And Trent Bolt, Trent, Trent Bolt is now an extraordinary batter. He, he he ran out to the ground. Whoever was out just before him hadn't even made it up the pavilion steps by the time Trent Bolt was at the stumps. He came charging out. He had all these massive weird ticks. And you talk to people who know a lot about New Zealand cricket, and they say Trent Bolt is now at a place where he is just going to fling his bat at the ball and he's going to show you all three stumps. And that is going to be what, you know, a bit Stuart Broadie in that way, but perhaps not quite as effective even. And Matt Potts had the opportunity there for a Fifer on debut at Lords on basically his first day of Test cricket. 
and he gets stricken by a calf cramp at exactly that moment. Uh, that is must have been gutting because what what uh, Ben Stokes said about him before the game was you know he'll he'll run through brick walls for you. He'll you know he came out to bowl when he had a, a little bit of stiffness in his side, didn't he, for Durham, and won them a game against Morgan. Took seven for he had he must have been in in some pain to have come off at that point when you have got Trent Bolt four balls at him and you're on a fifer. Oh. Well, I was I was watching that thinking he must have done something serious. I, I thought he'd torn his calf off or something because I was thinking in that position there, you'd be absolutely licking your lips. I mean, Trent Bolt, he's not quite a walking wicket, but um, like Bradford well, Ross, I mean, you, he, you, um, you'd bowl off one pace, wouldn't you? I mean, you, you, you could actually just fling one down yeah, uh, very say, full, I very straight. <laughs> because of the nature of the low scoring nature of the game, you'd think oh, any small margin may be important. So... Ben Stokes may be reluctant to let you do that. But yeah, you'd certainly be entering some sort of negotiation with the captain saying like, come on, test five for Lords, like um, keep me in the game. Um, so yeah, I did feel sorry for him. I, I'm glad he wasn't seriously injured. But yeah, it was uh, disappointing for him not to get the opportunity to take that fit. And, and being cramped, Finney, I mean, you can speak to this because you talked about, you know, your nervousness in 2015 and presumably, you know, your nervousness on debut. Because a lot of people were saying, how can you have cramp? He's only bowled 10 overs. And it wasn't a hot day, was it? It was like 21 degrees. But presumably, that nervous exhaustion, you know, being probably not sleeping particularly well that night, visualising what you're going to have happen, packed house at Lords. I mean, that takes stuff out of you, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. The emotional energy of playing Test Match Cricket is exhausting. I know it seems as though, oh, he's only bowled 10 overs. How can he be tired or how can he get cramped? But I cramped in a lot of my test matches that I played and a lot of the one days that I played, I got cramped because I found that I was quite an anxious person and a bad watcher and bad sleeper the night before games. Couldn't eat on the morning of games and get fuel on into my body because you just end up sat there chewing scrambled eggs and toast. It feels like it's not reducing in size at all as you're chewing it. It's just becoming more and more stodgy. And then before you know it, the bus is leaving and you've not eaten anything. So yeah, there are a number of different caveats that come with the nervousness of playing international cricket, especially when you're making your debut. So I've no doubt that it was a combination of those things as opposed to a lack of fitness that caused him to get cramped in that spell. I literally don't know how you guys do it. I get nervous before I bowl in my little club team. Yeah, if I did, if I bowled like you, I would as well, to be honest. I'd, <laughs> yeah, I'd get nervous playing in an over-70s game if I was you, um, bowling in those absolute powder puffs. That might be it when I'm still at the top of the mark and I see some big overseas South African guy come out and I'm like, well, this isn't going to go well, is it? That might be where the nervousness comes from. Um, now, you mentioned uh, Stuart Broad, the batsman there. But I do want to talk a little bit about Stuart Broad, the bowler, and Jimmy Anderson. It was so nice to see them back on a on a cricket pitch for England. I don't know how much longer we'll see them for, but every time that you do see them, it's nice to see them. Broady, I mean, he kind of didn't bowl that well in the first innings whilst uh, Potts and Anderson were, were taking all the wickets. But in true Stuart Broad fashion, he had his moments. He had a proper Stuart Broad moment. So if you didn't watch the game for any reason, there was a team hat-trick Stuart Broad got a very, very important breakthrough. Uh, then there was a bit of a brain fart from Colin the Grandholm, who somehow managed to go wandering out of his crease and Ollie Pope ran him out, which was absolutely hilarious. And then Stuart Broad stood at the top of his mark. At this point, Lords, which isn't always the most exciting atmosphere in the world at Lords, but Lords was absolutely bouncing. Stuart Broad stood at the top of his mark, told the crowd to get going even further. 
ran in and knocked Carl Jameson's off peg out the ground to make it a, a team hat trick and two wickets and three balls for him. Um, it was just the most Stuart Broad thing ever. You can look very stupid, Finney, if you stand at the top of your mark and tell the crowd to, to get going and get an atmosphere going and then you run in and, you know, it dribbles through to the wicketkeeper or you get pumped for four. But as I was watching it, I thought, Stuart Broad's probably going to bloody take a wicket here because he's so like that. Have you ever seen a bowler quite like him who just has mad moments and mad little spells and they can sometimes be free balls, sometimes they can be free overs, but he just seems to, when he gets his knees pumping and the crowd behind him, there's nobody quite like him. No, it's phenomenal. You do just sort of know that he's going to take wickets. I think I was in the pub after my game against Middlesex the other night having a Guinness to try and send me off to sleep. And there was a replay on the TV of his seven for 44 at Lords against New Zealand in 2013, in which I played. And him and Anderson shared nine wickets and there was a run out for the final wicket, a comical run out for the final wicket. But I didn't bowl in that innings. And that was an example of just, you just knew that Brody was going to take the wickets. Like it was almost not even a consideration that I was going to bowl in that innings. It was just a case of give Stuart the ball, his knees are pumping, he's going to take the wickets. He did it against South Africa at Johannesburg in 2016 as well, where he ridiculous spell of five for nothing, getting rid of the Villiers and all their gun players in the second innings to win us that series and win us that test match. And again, you just knew it's this weird feeling. You just sort of watch him and you're like, well, he's going to take wickets here. He did it. I mean, first time he did it, it was probably 2009. He won England the Ashes at the Oval, basically. They had a really good opening partnership in reply to a, a, a good England score. But England you know, needed to win the game, didn't they? Because it was one all, I think, going into that last match. And uh, Australia held the Ashes. And he bowled that incredible spell that sort of culminated in him getting Haddin out. And it was one of... I remember watching because it was the first year I'd done Test Match Sofa. And uh, we were we were pretty tired and emotional. And uh, by which I mean drunk, and it was it was the it was the moment when we had the greatest tamesis of all time, which for people who are unfamiliar is when you break a word up and put something in the middle of it. And on um, on TV, Jeffrey Boycott's commentary was broad, dadding, he's bold him, Australia in disarray, because he'd taken five for zip. And on Test Back Sofa, my commentator uh, Nigel, who we weren't, we couldn't hear the TV, goes broady. Eno added, bold him, Australia in this a fucking ray. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I've, I've loved Stuart Broad for that ever since. But you're right, there's this, there's this really weird thing, you know, like the 60 all out. You know, you got, you got the t shirt where all of Australia's innings would fit on an old 140 character tweet, every single ball of it and every wicket of it. You know. <laughs> Actually, I forgot about that one as well. Yeah, I've been there for quite a few of his, you um, have. Of his spells. Like yeah, that. well, yeah, and it, it is, it's an amazing feeling. You just stood at mid off, sort of being like, Well, I'm not going to have to bowl here. So I just, I just get to watch Stuart Broad tearing it up. It, that, that, I mean, that, but genuinely, though, that's what I was going to ask. Does that feel good or does it make you feel a little bit like, Oh, what? <laughs> well, no, what you hope is that he gets a bit tired by the time numbers nine, 10, and 11 are in, and you really lick up some rabbit pie. That's what you want, really. <laughs> lick up some rabbit pie. I think we found our podcast title there. Um, it, it's bizarre to say this because he's got 541 wickets, but Stuart Broad also, like in the first innings here, he sometimes looks really unthreatening when he bowls because he's, he's not, you know, rapid, rapid, quick. Even at his peak, he's not, not been, you know, 95 miles an hour. He's been very quick at times, but, and he doesn't 
swing or seen the ball absolute miles like you watch Jimmy. But And then suddenly he'll come back on for a different spell and you'll just see a different man and you can see the knees pumping and you think, here we go. And suddenly he looks unrecognisable almost. And yet 541 wickets later, he's doing something bloody right a lot of the time. Um, it's, it was just so- it's, it's so, you're right. And it is, it's so weird. And on that, that day, well, in that test match, actually, it was very strange on the first day, England had never bowled fuller at the start with a, with a new ball at Lords since, you know, since Crick Vizzy's records began. And if this was a thing that people had been talking about under Roots captaincy, hadn't they? They'd mentioned it out in Australia, in Adelaide. They did it in, in 2017. They mentioned it at Adelaide. It's a perennial conversation about do Anderson and Broad not bowl it full enough with the new ball, you know? Uh, I, I tend to think you probably trust people who've got nearly 1,200 wickets between them. They did bowl it fuller in Stokes's first test as captain. So all the conspiracy theories were coming out. Oh, are they bowling differently for Stokes? They're bowling differently for McCullum. But it was actually a bit floaty. And maybe, maybe Broadie does actually know what length he needs to bowl. So <laughs> the, ball, the ball he got Carl Jameson out with was not like a floaty full ball, actually. It, it came off the pads and knocked out the off pole, came back in a bit. Uh, the the ball that started the mayhem was actually a sort of wobble ball, wasn't it, that got out Daryl Mitchell. We a brief chat about those two, Mitchell and Blundell, extraordinary partnership, 195. The rest of the New Zealanders went for 220-odd for 19, and one partnership got 195, which is extraordinary. But it it's it's not actually that he bowls. I, I think if he just if he tries to bowl it too full, it can look a bit floaty and you don't like it. When he gets his, his natural length, and he trusts that natural length, and as you say, the knees pump, there's this weird inevitability that you're about to witness mayhem. And it's lovely for us, though, isn't it? Because that's what sport should be about. It shouldn't be predictable. It's like, is Broadie going to be on one today? Not got a clue. Maybe. Maybe not. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. And I don't think he has a clue either. I think he just finds out as he's bowling. He's like, oh, it's one of those days. Great. Um, well, that's pretty much all we've got time for. But uh, look, I was going to go into some of the more worrying aspects of the England performance. Uh, we did get castled for 141. We were 69 for four in the second inning. So there's still a few, you know, question marks over the top oh. order and things like that. But you know what? We haven't won a test match in so bloody long. Let's just enjoy it. And from 69 for four to, to chase a huge, huge total, by the way, and um, one of the highest, third highest ever total chased at, at Lords. Lords. Yeah, at Lords. Um, is an unbelievable win uh, with Stokes as captain, with Brendan McCullum sitting on the balcony for four days. So, uh, do you know what? Let's ignore all the negative bullshit for once and just say, well played England and well played Joe Root and uh, and everybody else. Uh, Finney, what's on the diary for you then? So you've got Surrey on Wednesday. We'll all be that's the uh, the zero ducks given derby. It is. I we've actually got a manic like. I've uh, played six games of cricket in the last ten days. We play on Wednesday at T20. At the Oval, we play on Friday T20 at Hove. We then travel to Cardiff on Saturday and play a four-day, a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We then travel back to Hove. Then we play a T20 on Friday. Then we play another T20 on Sunday. Um, and then we've got a four-day the following week, about a, a day after that or something. So it's a, it's a wild few weeks for us. So um, if I can make it through unscathed and having taken a few more wickets and not injured, then I'll be a very happy man. I'm very impressed at how well you remembered your fixture list. As you yeah. were saying that, I had uh, I had the fixtures in front of me on my phone and you were absolutely spot on with all of them. Whenever we get comedians or bands onto Radio X and ask them what their tour dates are, they never have a fucking clue. 
Do you know what? It's, it's it's lovely to see that, isn't it? And what's also lovely is that it's it's really manic for Philly because he might be working something like a five day week, like all other human beings, for about four weeks, which is uh, it's it's good to see. <laughs> oh, you've got it tough, haven't you? Jesus. <laughs> I expend some degree of physical energy when I go to work. You should just sit there and spurt rubbish oh, and then claim yeah. that you're working. Do you, do you think this rubbish comes easy to me? Yes. God, like, like seems this, to. This week, Finney, this week, <laughs> right, you spent you spend entire days with your feet up watching Shea Pajara bat forever, right? I've had to do 20 minutes on uh, TMS, followed by 20 minutes on SE, SEN. Yeah, getting paid double. I bet you're not doing that for free, are you? No, certainly not doing it for free. No, but you're, but you're not doing it for free when you've got your fucking feet up doing absolutely nothing. You're getting, you're getting paid. I think what we've all settled here cards. is that I am comfortably the hardest working member of this podcast with my yeah, 15 I think that's hour a week. True. But, yeah. but my, yeah, I, what I was going to say was a couple of things. I'm, I'm slightly, I, I'm off to Trent Bridge for the next test. I'm only doing one day on TMS for this one, but I'm doing the rest of it for SEN. And I've had to um, learn how to do commercial radio. Finney, have you ever, have you ever done cricket commentary on commercial radio yet? Yeah, in New Zealand, yeah. Right. So do you know that bit where you have to take a break? And, uh, what we're doing is pretty much at the end of every over. So you go, uh, and uh, that's the end of the over, England uh, 59 for four here on SEN's coverage in association with Razine Paints, the paint that New Zealanders trust. And then you, you come back, and for the whole of the first day, the, um, the, the replay screen was sponsored by something called Chemist Warehouse, which is the worst name of any company I could think of, a Chemist Warehouse. And I kept getting it wrong and calling it the Chemical Warehouse, which uh, <laughs> I don't think the sponsor would have been too chuffed with. But because I was toggling between boxes, when I went back up to TMS... And I say, I'm just going to have a check of this on the replay with the on the 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 replay screen. You get very very confused between the different stations that you're on. One of them, the commercial radio, as you know, Finney, is all a bit. You know what Toby works on? It's all a bit brash, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit crass. Yeah, the adverts are erectile dysfunction. You got it. Yeah. Whereas on the BBC, you're not allowed. You're not allowed to basically mention that you like anything without saying something else similar is also available it's a, it's a very exhausting thing so i'm off to trent bridge to do that and because i do it for sen i'm going to be put up not in a nice swanky hotel instead i've got to live with adam collins and jared kimber in an airbnb about three miles outside the center of nottingham i have no trust or faith in this airbnb at all i expect it to be mouse infested with bed bugs when i come back i could be in a dreadful state and all the time, I'm looking over my shoulder, wondering whether Sal, our producer, has received the 15% of letters required from our listeners to ensure that a vote of no confidence takes place in me, which is, I mean, obviously 15% of one is basically the one listener. So if Jack That'd have Rawls, to be like Jack's knee, from Jack's yeah. knee downwards. would be. Well, actually, we've got, we've got at least two now because we've got Jack Roberts as well. So I suppose we'd just take a letter from either of them. Mm. And then, and then there's a there's there's a no confidence motion in me, and so there's a lot of things that are sailing me at the moment. I'm very concerned. Well, actually, that's not entirely how it works because if you're comparing it to the politics vote of no confidence, it, that's actually a vote from within. So it's actually not about the public; it's about me, Finney, and Sal. And I can well, say, hand on heart, I've not had any confidence in you since the first time I laid eyes <laughs> on you all those years ago. <laughs> Send Sal the letter. Send him the letter. <laughs> Chaps, lovely to see you both, and uh, nice to nice to talk about an England victory for once, rather than me just being fucking miserable. So speak to you soon, chaps. All the best. 
Bye. Love you all. Sports Social Podcast Network.